everybody. Welcome to the EquipCast. I just had the most amazing conversation with Dan Burke. For those of you who don't know, Dan Burke is a journalist, author, spiritual director. Uh, and Dan and I sit down and have a really honest conversation about his story and about the heart of evangelization, about love. This is really one of the most memorable conversations we've ever had on the EquipCast, and it's one that you need to listen to. Have a listen. Everybody, welcome to the EquipCast, a weekly podcast for the Archdiocese of Omaha. I'm your host, Jim Jansen. Now let's dive into some encouragement and inspiration to equip you to live your faith and to be fruitful in your mission. Let's go. Hey everybody, welcome to the EquipCast. I am really excited to introduce you to our guest today, uh, Dan Burke. Welcome to the EquipCast. How are you doing? Good. It's great to be with you. Okay. So Dan, I want to give you a chance to share a little bit of your story. We just kind of met over the phone here. I had a chance to see your uh, story, a, a kind of an extended testimony on YouTube. Honestly, one of the most powerful and I think helpful stories, particularly for those of us who are trying to evangelize in today's culture. Can you just give us a little bit of a, a thumbnail sketch of, of your story? Sure. Well, I'm Jewish by birth, still Jewish. That's confusing. I can <laughs> clarify if you want, but I'm a Hebrew Catholic. My father was agnostic. My parents were divorced young. First Catholic I ever met, fired a gun in our home, beat my mother into the emergency room and terrorized us kids. And uh, my mother, to deal with it, was involved in, we went to synagogue, but she was also involved in the occult. And um, unfortunately, sometimes when you call into the darkness, something comes. Mm. Fortunately, most of the time, nothing does come. But that's why we have exorcists when something does come. So that happened in our home. And uh, so my childhood was a terrorizing, dark, you know, kind of, situation and it resulted in one of my brothers attempting suicide and another brother i guess succeeding event in a mm. way drug induced heart attack and you know so um i was really the only one who made it out partially sane although i have another brother who's working on it but so about 19 or so i was in total despair and i learned something that everybody knows who's been through abuse that when you leave the home it, it doesn't leave you it stays with you and especially if there's demonic elements to it so so i cried out to the lord I, I remember exactly where i was and and then he started to send people to me it was like he said okay i heard you i'm gonna send you know here's the first one <laughs> who's strong enough to deal with your sin and your prickliness as my my uh, mother-in-law would say from Costa Rica that like a porcupine. <laughs> I love it. I cried out to the Lord. He started to send people into my life. First, it was evangelical Christians. I guess he couldn't find any Catholics that would say yes at the time. <laughs> or maybe I wouldn't listen to them. I don't know, because of my stepfather. But um, I probably wouldn't have listened. That's why he sent the others. Yeah. And so, I mean, I could I could go on, but the crux of it is, I came to believe in the veracity or the reliability or the historical soundness from the standpoint of archaeology and internal consistency and 
manuscript evidence. I came to like this sort of legal view of the veracity of the Old Testament, which meant that it was beyond a reasonable doubt a reliable document. Mm. From there, I was led to challenge to then compare the claims of Jesus against the Jewish concept of the Messiah and what, you know, to whom he would be born, where he would be born, what he would do, how he would be killed, all of that. And that also was very rational to me and beyond a reasonable doubt. The testimony of the four witnesses, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I read a book by Simon Greenleaf, who was in the 19th century. He was the head of evidences or the primary expert at evidences or evidence in Harvard Law School, meaning he he wrote the textbook on how you weigh the testimony of, of a witness. Yeah. What evidence is by definition, and then strengths and weaknesses. And and he he was an atheist and he decided to put the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on the on the witness stand and cross-examine them. And in the process of doing that, using his Harvard Law School, you know, scholarship, he be he became a Christian. So books like that. That's great. I love it. So that's kind of the this the intellectual side of my conversion was, but there were people delivering these things to me, hmm. working with me through these all along the way. And there were people also who were very self-sacrificial um, so that I would listen, which is, I think, an important part of our conversation. Yeah. Eventually, uh, I was very anti-Catholic. Eventually, I became Catholic in a similar way, but a little less intellectual because I didn't need as much of that. Mm-hmm. People helping me bridge the gap between my Protestant perspective on on Jesus and the church and to a Catholic one. And then eventually, you know, I became Catholic, which I have been since 2005. But that's in an, that's sort of the skeleton. I don't know where you want to dig in on the details, but. Well, I'm just, I mean, I'm curious, was there a time you mentioned you were, you know, ethnically Jewish, born Jewish, and there's a time where you're you're coming to believe in the veracity of the scriptures. Was there a time that you kind of began to be religiously Jewish in the interim between accepting the Old Testament and then accepting the the New Testament? Probably not. I mean, it's hard to say. I, I've always been a religious person in the sense that mm. because I was exposed to demonic activity as a young person, very young, mm. you can't not be religious and or you're not sane. I mean, either you're not sane and you're imagining things or you believe in, you know, otherworldly realities. And but I lived through it. So yeah. Believing was has never been a question for me. But uh we went to synagogue and I identified as a Jew and I still do. Mm-hmm. Like that's you know, people people say well, you know they're they're Irish or they're Italian, full blood Italian. I you know I I like I feel that way. Yeah. And I went to bar mitzvahs and I I had an aunt and uncle Sadie and High and they were my uncle wore a black hat and he had the you know the Orthodox curls and you know we celebrated Passover or not. But we were Reformed Jews, which are sort of like cultural Catholics in quotes. Um, so. Religion was as much, it was an identity, but it was like a social construct more than a faith. But for me, I don't recall ever not having faith. 
And maybe it's just because of what I saw as a kid. Yeah. I don't know. I just never, I've always believed in something other, you know. When did Jesus as kind of like a personal figure enter in? Because you mentioned there was a little bit of an intellectual conversion happening. When did Jesus as a person kind of begin to capture your imagination in your heart? When he revealed himself as a person through other people. Like the first encounter with a Christian that I didn't, you know, I had no connection with was a guy named Mark. I was working at Pizza Hut. I'd moved from Los Angeles to Phoenix to go to school. And and I was, uh, when you grow up the way I did, people hurt. And so I had a barrier. I had an attitude, let's say it that way. I had an attitude and a disposition that you had to overcome if you wanted to talk to me because I was trying to protect myself from you because you're a person and mm. people hurt. You've met people like this, very grouchy and gruff and language isn't so good. They're not so friendly. So I go to work for Pizza Hut and I'm doing the dishes and this dude named Mark shimmies up next to me and says, hey, I'm done with my work. Can I help you? And my name's Mark. I said, sure. In my mind, I'm thinking, what an idiot. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> like, I wouldn't be doing that for you, but if you want to do it for me, that's fine, you know. Then he did it again, and he did it again, and and I, and I started to wonder what was going on. And the only thing I could conclude, given the way I thought then, was that he was gay and that he was, you know, hitting on me or something. And I, uh, what I'm saying to you is my mindset back then. Yeah. You know, I have a huge respect for courage and people who struggle with same-sex attraction, all that. But I'm just saying the way I thought back then. So the way I would have dealt with it back then is to put his lights out uh, so that he had pain associated with his misunderstanding of my uh, my preferences. So I took him out back, and I don't remember what I said to him, <laughs> but I remember him backing up with his hands up startled and like no i'm a christian i you know i'm supposed to be nice this is what we do you know please don't hit me right please don't hit me then he gave you know he told me his testimony he told me about how he was a cocaine addict and he got hooked up on cocaine because he was a musician and he you know it helped him to play and mm. but then he it sort of wrecked his life and so that first encounter with jesus was was mark was his name was mark and he loved me i mean you know his love for God and his love for me was stronger than my repulsion, mm. and stronger than his fear, and stronger than his, you know, timidity. His love overcame his own frailties and weaknesses and fears to deal with me, mm. and it had a big effect on me. Talk about that effect. What happened? Well, I mean, you know, it made me open to the faith. Uh, you know, he another thing happened, which was fascinating, too, is the day that I was on bathroom duty, like my first bathroom duty. Cleaning, right? You're still at Pizza Hut and you got to- Cleaning a public bathroom, yes. Ooh, yeah. yeah, that's a rough day. I whined about it and he said he would do it. And I honestly don't recall ever cleaning the bathrooms again or ever having to. And I think- because, you know, he did wow. it. So the effect on me was it, it, you know, I, I always like to say love builds a bridge over which truth can pass. 
I'm not talking about using your stupid turn signals or opening the door for people or or restraining your instinct to kick puppies because none of that's going to get, it's not going to get you to heaven or help anyone else to heaven. But I'm talking about truly implicating yourself in the lives of others, giving yourself to others in your testimony, whatever that may be. Even if you're like a cradle Catholic and you, you're maybe like Therese and you had some minor temper issue at some point, but still, you know, every Catholic has a story about why they didn't abandon their faith. Yeah. They have a story. It lets, if they never did, they have a story about why it's always remained with them. They can bear testimony to, they can say, I know Jesus is real and I know what it's like to be in relationship with him. Every Catholic can do that. But, but whether or not it will be heard is dependent on the degree to which you love, you know, you and I have a mutual, I mean, you know her better than I do, Michelle Dupong, yeah, whose process is underway to be canonized. You hired her, right? Mm-hmm. For which diocese? This The one you're in now? Or? She was a student at North Dakota State University, and I was working in regional leadership for Focus, and she interviewed, and it somewhat sad to say we didn't offer her a job right away. We, we weren't so sure about this girl. Um, wasn't sure she was a good fit. And then, uh, eventually thanks to the kind of intervention of her, you know, pastor and uh, team team leader at the time who just told me we were crazy for not, we ended up hiring her and she came to work at the university of Nebraska Lincoln where I was. And then she ended up getting cancer. Yes. I met her, uh, when she was in Nebraska, I was working with this with this uh, spiritual uh, direction program there, and was talking with her. But the point being, something you said about her that I, that I also recognize in her, and and people said about John Paul II, if they were yes. talking to you, you were the only person that existed. There's this deep kind of conveyance of love and care for you yeah. that emanated from her heart and her disposition that made you want to connect with her. And actually made thousands of people want to connect with her, right? Yeah. You know, it, it was almost uncomfortable because I, she was paying so much attention to you. You're like, gosh, you're paying more attention to me than I'm paying attention to me. Right, right. And, and it was like, she was one of the most fruitful missionaries. Not, again, she was anything but flashy. She was just an ordinary North Dakota farm girl. Not flashy at all. Again, we almost didn't hire her because she just didn't stick out and we weren't quite so sure she had what it took. Uh, turns out love is what it takes. And yeah. she had that. Yeah. So that's it. You know, I was, Catholics are worried about evangelization. The smarter they are, the more problematic it is. Yes. The more degrees they have, the harder it is to get through to them to say, what you have to offer isn't your mind, it's your heart, and it's your knowledge of, of Jesus himself. And, you know, I always want to tell Catholics, Protestants don't know that much of the Bible. I memorized 22 scriptures to go door to door, and most Protestants don't know any more than like 15 or 20 scriptures. They don't hear as much of the Bible as Catholics do. We hear it in every Mass. If you go to daily Mass, you know you know the Bible way better than any Protestant. But none of that matters. There's a lot of people who affected me. Maybe I could jump ahead to Phyllis to give the example. Yes, I love. Please, let's talk about Phyllis. I came to Christ in a Southern Baptist church, and then I ended up going to work for Dr. James Dobson, who at the time was probably the most influential evangelical in the world, along with Billy Graham and uh, 
a few others. Certainly, yeah. And and so I went to work for him, and I had not worked out a lot of the darkness in my life still. I My nickname, unfortunately, and I'm ashamed of this at Focus on the Family, was Nuke, which is short for nuclear, because I tended to be really sensitive to people who below me and the and the like managerially below me. But if you were like an equal or someone above me and you didn't come prepared for a meeting or I thought your idea was stupid, uh, I was going to tell you why they tolerated me for so long. This is always kind of baffling, but it's just mercy. So anyway, I'm nuke at Focus on the Family, very anti-Catholic at this point, because the Baptists I hooked up with at first were anti-Catholic. It was like their identity was what they were against. We used to call them againers, you know, because the entire their entire personality and theological you know, framework is is not positively asserted like we as the church do. You know, I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty Creator. It's more of like I'm not one of those people. I don't believe that false doctrine. I don't believe you know. So, and it was all aimed at the Catholic Church. So that was my, and then coupled with my wounds from my stepdad, who was who was a brutal human being, Catholic. It just was like concrete in my heart. So I'm at Focus on the Family and I meet Phyllis. And Phyllis, funny enough, the video that you saw that where you found me, if you go back and look at that, she she has a comment in the top line that's pinned there. We reconnected because that video went viral. Oh my goodness. That's so fantastic. Yeah, the occult to Catholic is the name of it, but it went viral. She watched it and then we ended up talking on Zoom and it was funny. So I, I said something kind of offensive, and I but she said no, it was totally true. Phyllis was a lousy apologist. And I said, I apologize. For <laughs> she said, no, no, I was. I'm better now, you know. But the thing that she did was, she told me when she talked to me, she used to tremble when I was coming the same way in the hallway toward her. I mean, yeah. Like, like oh, here comes Nuke. Like, right. Yeah, Nuke. And not only Nuke the Catholic, because she was evil. Yeah. She was a bad person. She was a, you know, worshipped all, you know, she, she venerated you know, the whore of Babylon, to use revelation language. So she, she was an idol worshiper. So that's how I saw her. And I saw her as a liar and a bad person because she was a Catholic working at a, a pure, good organization, an evangelical organization. And she had to have lied to get in. Wow. So that's how I treated her. Now, the thing that she did, though, was, is all she did, well, a couple of things. One, she never ran. She never cowered. She would just say, "What well, would you like to talk about that? You know, if I made some quip, like you're a Mary worshiper, you're going to hell, which I would, she would say, would you like to talk about that? You know, you want to grab lunch or something. Oh, that's great. Right. So, so again, what's the pattern? Mark dealing with porcupine, threatening him, being a jerk to him. You know, and he just hangs in. Yeah. Phyllis, the same thing. I was nicer, but still had all kinds of, you know, prickly things about my personality. And and she loved more. <laughs> it, it's it's hard to talk about because it's very emotional to me. But she loved me more than the pain she had to suffer to deal with me. Hmm. The affront of the disrespect. And that she said she trembled, but she loved me more than her trembling told her, stay away from him. Because that's human, that's human nature. 
this guy is harmful because hurt people hurt people, you know? And so, but, but she loved me more than that, you know? So, so anyway, we would talk and I would, she never convinced me of anything. I don't remember a word she ever said, except that she eventually was quitting. And there was this, they were throwing this big party for her. She was much beloved. There was like 60 people at this going away party and I was told I had to come and I said, I'm not coming because she's a Catholic and I'm glad she's leaving. And and then, so they sent somebody of a higher rank hmm. that made me go to the party. And so I, so I walk in the room and there are these five chairs set up in the front of the room in front of everyone. And I was asked to sit in the first one and it was a a chair that was elevated like a bar stool. So your feet are kind of off the ground on a little bar. Mm-hmm. And she began to, I can never tell this. She began to talk about how I had helped her faith and how I, my challenges were, were really uh, beautiful and powerful to her and, and how I had blessed her. And then she took off my shoes and she washed my feet. No, I'm just like, what, what is this? Like, you know, so I didn't become Catholic the day after, but you can be pretty darn sure that when I'm assessing what it looks like to be a a disciple of Jesus, you know, and I look at myself in the mirror and, and I'm to use biblical language, I'm an ass. Uh, You could just, for those offended, just think donkey, get over it. And this woman, and I treated the woman like that. And she washed my feet. And so it just opened the door. It just, it made me think. And and it, and again, it wasn't anything she said. And this is, I want to tell Catholics, mm. what she did, everyone can do. Yeah. It, and it, it doesn't matter if you have a below average IQ. It, it doesn't matter if you're autistic. I have an autistic son. I mean, I'm not, you know, it, yeah, I just love people and and love and they'd be ready as scripture says, to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. What that doesn't mean, it doesn't say to be like I I was or or not to compare myself to Scott Hahn or Scott Hahn or whatever. You know, I needed to go through these like super intellectual things. But but you know what? I don't share that with anybody. I've rarely brought those things up in testimony. Why why do we have 3,500 people in the community of Apostoli Vie, which I founded, and it's all over the world. Why do we have 220,000 subscribers uh, at spiritualdirection.com? Why is the why are why do my books sell so well? It's because I'm a broken human being and I admit it. And I'm not afraid to admit it. And I'm an I'm an idiot who needs Jesus. I want to tell you another story that I, I love. Uh it was I went to a get my hair cut at a place that I had never been before. And it was a bad, you know, I just couldn't, I didn't have time and I couldn't get in the normal guy. So I end up at this, in this barber chair with a woman with half of her head shaved, which is is usually a sign that she plays a part in a role of like a lesbian relationship, the way she was dressed and everything. And so I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. And so she asked me what I did. And I, I had a lot of different answers. I At that time, I think I was president of EWTN News, but I said, I said, well, I'm a writer. And that that means I I'm happy to talk because usually people go oh that's interesting what do you write about so I said well I write about Catholic mystical tradition and 
And so anyway, we're talking and then she pauses, this is pregnant pause. And she said, can I ask you a question? And I knew what she was going to ask me. I don't know if the Lord revealed it or whatever. I said, you want to know what I think about you, don't you? Because I had shared with her that I'm a devout Catholic and what I believe. Yeah. And she was shocked. And she said, <laughs> she said, I do want to know. And I said, can I answer a different question? I think a better question. What do I think about us? And I said, you and I are broken people who are not going to make it to heaven without a Savior. And that's why Jesus came. All of us are broken. All of us have wounds. And the only solution to reconcile us to the Father, to pay the price for our sins, is Jesus Christ. And, you know, there's no argument when you— when you're honest, you bear witness, as as the scripture says, to the, to the hope that lies within your hope. Why do you hope? I hope because I'm an idiot, and I hope I hope because left to my own devices, I'm going to hell. I hope because Jesus really was the Messiah, is the Messiah. He really did pay the price for my sins. There's nothing intellectual about anything I just said. It's just my testimony, and of course, I can share about my life of total despair. I can share about, you know, not knowing peace and then coming to know peace. That's all, that's all experiential. And, and people think, well, you have to you have evidence. Sure. But, you know, anyway, uh, that's effective evangelism, if you ask me. Yeah. No, I mean, you're so right. I, I've had a similar experience where, you know, part of being a focused missionary is, uh, especially in the early days, there was an intense training in apologetics. And we would like literally drill and memorize and role play and practice. And for like the kind of final exam, you had to throw a dart at a dartboard. And, you know, if you were really good, maybe you could get the Eucharist. So, you know, if you hit the bullseye, but all of these other difficult apologetics topics, and then you had to go sit with Ted Sree or Curtis Martin and go through this conversation, role playing. And you know what? I never used it. Now, I'm so glad I was given it because what it did for my understanding and confidence in the faith, but conversations with, you know, non-Catholics, evangelicals, Protestants, whatever, I never got there because it was all about the friendship we developed and the like, wow, you love Jesus? It was right and it was good. And I should say, I'm I'm exaggerating. It's not not like I never used it, but it never led the way. A friendship, love always led the way. Love builds a bridge over which truth can pass. And until, I think one of the powerful things about focus, I mean, at least in my experience, I've never been a, you know, Catholic college student, but I did work with, I've given spiritual direction to focus missionaries, worked with retreats for them, you know, given formation to them, that sort of thing. But they're all wired to implicate themselves in the lives of other people. They're all wired to look at somebody and say, there's something neat about you and I want to know you. And maybe it's the training, right? Or which is great, where mm-hmm. the training teaches you how to do that in a structured way and how to invite and hey, let's have pizza and let's study scripture. You know, that's all fine and good. But unless somebody looks in your eyes, like that hair woman, she knew. Mm-hmm. You know, she knew that I didn't look down on her because I don't, because mm-hmm. we both deserve the same end without Jesus. And people can just tell. So, you know, if you want to be a great evangelist, love. 
love people and be honest about your own frailty. Be honest about your own brokenness. Be honest. Somebody says, you know, what about this argument? Like, like how can you believe in a God that, does, you know, allows this kind of evil? It's like, it's okay to say, you know what? That's a good question. And it pains me. And I'm, I'm a little disturbed that I don't know the answer, but can we just like put a date next week and, you know, on the calendar where we get together for coffee. And I think I know who to ask. And I just like to talk to you about it. And why does it bother you so much? Yeah. You know, because there's something in you. My suspicion is something difficult happened to you. Was you just watch? Yeah. You do. You you talk like that. You watch the other person melt in front of you, or they'll start yes. to tear up, and they'll go, "Whoa, you know, this is a little too much." Or, "Yeah, I'd like to talk about it." But it's it's evangelism isn't me smart, perfect, intellectual, argumented up, armored up, telling you, poor sinner going to hell and aren't I amazing and aren't you pitiful and let's get this over with. You know, I just think people think that's evangelism and I, and I, it is, it's loving people. And the irony, I mean, this is why I think what you're saying is so important. The irony is many of the people who are best positioned to be a fruitful evangelist because they're aware of their weakness. They're aware of their inadequacy. They're aware, they're not a know-it-all. They're so well positioned to do it. But if you think it is about how much you know, you won't get started. And they realize they actually have everything they need. Well, and it's the same thing, you know, I think one of the best ways to evangelize is through a small um, Bible study, which of course is a focus uh, mainstay. Yeah, talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Or our community in Apostle VA. I'm looking at a list right now of small Bible studies: Melbourne, Australia; Sydney, Australia; Birmingham, Alabama; Livermore. Oh gosh, Europe, all over the world, all over the United States. Why did I write a book to help people do that? Why? Why do we give free training to people who want to do that? It's because it gives you a context within which you can invite people into something that would be, that if if God's moving at all in their life, they'll be interested in, where it's really safe. But the, the main barrier to people doing that is that they think they have to teach a Bible study. Yes. And you don't, you don't have to teach a Bible study. All you have to do is facilitate conversation. You read a passage in the Gospels and you say, you know, what stood out to you? And if you got six people, somebody's going to talk, and then you know how this works. It always works this way. Someone yes. will talk, and then another person will talk, and then they'll all start talking. And then in the end, all you got to do is go, well, what are you going to do about it? That's so good. You know, not complicated. But loving people, implicating yourself in their lives, helping them move, going to the hospital when they're sick, you know, whatever it is, mowing their lawn when they can't. I don't know what the, how you implicate yourself there. Doing their work for them. Finishing your work sooner. Yeah. Saying one day, hey, you look a little distressed, you want to talk, whatever. But then have a place to invite them to uh, in a small group where you can build relationship. And then and then usually what happens with small groups, as you know, it ends up that a few people linger afterwards and they have these deeper conversations or they mm -hmm. agree to meet and you know, somebody wants to become Catholic or somebody wants to overcome habitual sin or they want to get out of this bad relationship or this drug use. We used to use this this metaphor again, you know, encouraging students or new missionaries who are just like, I don't know if I can lead a small group. It's like the word of God is alive. It's a lion. Just let it out of its cage, and it's going to do its thing. We need to like build on that. 
the Bible is not just ink and paper. It's the words of God. And it's words about God inspired by God himself. And scripture says that it has power. It claims in and of itself to have power. And this is another thing people don't understand. I'm a melancholic introvert. And I and I would rather be like my natural disposition is always to find a hole to be alone in. And so I so some people might think, well, you know, you do all these, you talk all over the world and you're you have all these books and you must be an expert. It's like, no, no. All of that's hard for me. But when you love people, that motivates you, you know, to help. You want to, you want them to go to heaven. But the other thing about it is you realize. If you're if you're not prideful off the chart, I don't want to claim that I'm humble, but I do have a real strong sense of my own sort of stupidity or whatever, my brokenness. And that is, I have felt horrible, sick, inarticulate. I would claim with great certainty that I was inarticulate and that I did explain things poorly. And it has, and I get a standing ovation for a thousand people. At a diocese, mm -hmm. you know, Bishop Jenkins mm -hmm. made all of his teachers and all of his employees come listen to me talk. And what's so funny about it is, on the on the escalator up, I heard two teachers complaining about what are we doing here? They're cussing, and you know, this is so lame. And the bishop <laughs> makes us come, and I'm standing right behind him. You know, and I'm sure that was probably represented, you know, probably close to half of the people in the diocese. And I I was a total buffoon. <laughs> <laughs> and it had a huge impact on people. Why does that happen? Because because when we are, when we love and we step out and we give ourselves to what God asks us to do, which is go into the, all the world and make disciples, right? When we do that, he's with us. And when we're a buffoon and we say stupid things, he fixes it. His Holy Spirit works. Yes. Now, here's some theology that you will not find anywhere codified, but I believe it's true. I actually believe, Jim, that if I say something stupid and you need to hear something different, but I'm speaking out of a desire to bring you to Christ, he will change or purify what I say as it reaches you to what you need to hear. Yeah. Because I can't explain any other way of being a buffoon and saying things really poorly and being inarticulate and stuttering, which I, you know, uh, and having a, a huge effect. The Lord loves it's it's almost like a modern day, you know, like what the buffoon version of the gift of tongues, where where the Lord is like, Okay, I maybe would have said it different, but he gives this gift so that the hearers hear his words. Right. I mean, all of this, Dan, as you're talking, like it it's so Marian. And what I mean by that is like, you know, any Catholic worth their salt knows, okay, Mary's the best. God used Mary to to save the world. But at a natural level, it's not this extraordinary gifting. It's the humble, right? God, I mean, you listen to the Magnificat, God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And when we know who we are in our brokenness, buffoonness, I'd love that you, you keep using that word, then his spirit comes and gives power through our weakness. Right. And I can tell you, when I feel assured and strong and I get up to speak, I worry now. Because I'm thinking, mm. I'm thinking, where are you, Holy Spirit? I need to be low. I don't know. Anyway, it always makes me nervous. But I, we just need to trust the Lord. I mean, he 
he wants everyone to come to salvation. He desire, I mean, he created every single human being, even the most vile that one that you can think of. He mm -hmm. created the, the reason that person exists is for an eternal relationship of love with God. And and when you talk about like what's the dream team of bringing people to that reality? Well, it's Jesus, the Holy Spirit, you know, the Father, guardian angels. Don't worry, just just be a witness. Right. And and you. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, you know, I, I'm yeah. a, I'm a walk on and you know, the others were drunk when when they signed me, you know. No. Well, but I mean, when I say you, I mean like all of us, right? Where yeah, it's yeah, like, right. yeah. yeah, I was like, who's the team? It's like, well, we've got Jesus and Mary and St. Michael and God the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jim. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> right. Right. You're a better pick than me. But yeah, I, right. Exactly. It's so good. Well, and I just want to go back to one thing because it keeps coming back to me in the, in the conversation is like, I, I can imagine maybe somebody hearing this is saying like, yeah, but I'm not Dan Burke. Like, uh, you know, there were no seances in my home and there were no like abuse and this and that. And it's like, again, back to Michelle Dupont. Michelle had a great childhood. She had a very ordinary upbringing, no extreme trauma. And although a beautiful family, not like, I see the Lord's grace working profoundly in her and her extended family. But they weren't like off the charts, crazy uber Catholics either. They just were ordinary folks who loved. And Michelle's love, without some extraordinary trauma or story in her life, her love was just contagious. Yeah, and that's really that's really the secret. One of my most recent books is called "Devil in the Castle." Subtitle is "Saint Teresa of Avila: Spiritual Warfare and the Progress of the Soul." But I write about her reflections on the the spiritual battles at each stage of the interior life. Mm. And a lot of people are surprised when they sit down and really read and study Teresa and get to know her and understand her because what she says is your mystical experiences have nothing to do with your maturity. Mm. Who you are intellectually has nothing to do with how God sees you or loves you. What matters in the end, the only measure in the end is love. The only measure is love. How you love God and how you love others. I mean, I love that and I know it's true, but that makes me tremble a little bit. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, I don't know what what foolish standard I think I would like to be evaluated on instead of love. Right. But, you know, if I'm honest, I'm like, ooh, even when good stuff happens, it's tainted with a lot of self-love. Sure. But even that, I remember one of my favorite devotions, even before I became Catholic, was Stations of the Cross. Mm. I was Anglican before I became Catholic because I needed a little bit of a bridge into the, into through the muck of my heart, you know. And I remember praying. My favorite is Liguri's uh, Stations, and there's this portion where he's, you know, I love you, Jesus, my love. Grant that I might love you always and do with me as you will. And I'm praying that, and I'm going, but I don't. You know, there's a part of me that doesn't. I do want to be a Christian and a Catholic, but I don't. And I and I felt like a hypocrite praying it. And it was like my guardian angel said, "You know what? You just need to get over yourself because because you're always going to be have mixed motives, and that should never keep you from doing all that you can." And so, God be praised. Now I can say I do mean it fully when I say it. Now it's twenty years later, right? But 
I do mean it when I say it, but what if I just stopped saying it because I heard your motives aren't pure or either self-talk or the enemy himself proposing it to me? Well, your motives aren't pure. You usually do that. Well, all of our motives are impure. And I would say, even though when I pray that prayer now, I feel it fully, I still know my motives are impure. I still care too much about what people think of me, or I still I still want to sound like the smartest guy in the room, or I still want to mention that I wrote 15 books or whatever, you know, and I still, those that kind of junk still comes out of my stupid mouth. And then I go, like, who cares? Like, who are you, you know? But one of the things I love about The Chosen, I'll just, I went to the, mo- the movie last night. Yeah. Oh, there we go. It was awesome. Is it just shows the humanity of Jesus and his disciples yes. and how they weren't a bunch of people floating around, hugging each other. And, you know, <laughs> they fought and they argued and, and it's in the New Testament. You know, James and John were like, I want to sit at your right and left hand. And their mom is, you know, wanting them to be, you know, Peter got named the rock and, or Simon got named Peter the rock. And why weren't they named? And, you know, we see, we see shadows of this in the New Testament. Oh, yeah, It's so true to human nature, which is one of the reasons I actually came to believe the Bible was true because it didn't deify or canonize its followers of God. I mean, David himself, right, who murdered the Hittite and had, a, had an affair and took his wife, was also a man after God's own heart. You know, I always thought, that's real, because that's I feel. I love God, but I'm, I'm a problem too. Yeah, well, and Peter, like I love, there's like, there's no airbrushing. I mean, really, this guy's like the first pope maybe could have interfered in the redacting editing process. And he looks like a buffoon most of the New Testament. It's like, there's, yeah, there's no way that this has got to be an authentic, unedited text. Because if I had the chance, we would have taken some of those passages out. (laughs) Right. At least if it was about me. They did it to Noah. They did it to uh, Peter. They, you know, the whole, yeah, the whole revelation. Abraham, there's, yeah. Yeah. I love it. Dan, I want to just like... I want to pivot just a little bit here. I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about uh, your work and just what you see on the national and and international scene in, in the church. You know, the Lord has been using you. You've been doing beautiful things. And you just have a, a perspective that I want to give you a chance to kind of share that with, with people. Because it, I don't know, depending on what news you're watching and how you're paying attention, things can be a little puzzling. Yeah. So my, it was funny. I used to say this when I was the president of EWTN News. I was over the entire global organization and I would say, you should turn the news off. And I would, <laughs> I would always have my my fellow, you know, C-level executives look at me a little funny, but they knew what I why I was saying it. And that is, you know, in my position as being the founder of a community, as being the president of a, of a, an institution that forms priests and religious and laity. I mean, we do formal work with 85 dioceses to prepare a guy for seminary. We teach the in-house spirituality program at the mountain Emmitsburg. And so we're, we're in the heart of the church. We're teaching. I have to know what's going on in the church. Mm-hmm. And the reason I have to know is because people trust me and they want to know. It's just normal. They want to know what people they trust think you know, and people that can give them peace. Mm-hmm. But I would say if you're not in that kind of position or you you working for a diocese similar, 
you know, being in media and evangelism, you kind of got to have your pulse on things because you got to you got to figure out how to navigate it. And you know, you're going to get questions like about McCarrick or whatever, or yeah. sexual abuse in the church, that sort of thing. But if you're not in a position of influence like that, and you're not a and you're not a person of deep prayer and intercession, you just, in my opinion, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't partake. It's a waste of time because look, the the church, we're in a dark period. It's just a fact. Mm-hmm. Anyone who who tries to skirt that is just not being honest and is trying mm-hmm. to hide things. You know, it just is, and that's not the opinion. Just the opinion. It might, I mean, that's the opinion of of a huge number of bishops, which recently came against formally uh, fiducia supplicants. Well, and you can make the case that John Paul II said the same thing. I, yeah. I love the quote where he talks about, you know, I see the dawning of a new evangelization. But like, yeah, but when someone says, I can see dawn coming in this hopeful prophetic call, it means it's night now. Right. It means it's dark and he was, you know, he was very optimistic, which is one of the things I loved about him. Yeah. He foresaw that, you know, he talked about this new springtime of faith and and a lot of us are going, yeah, but the the buds came through and then we got another freeze and they all died, you know? <laughs> and and so what am I supposed to do? And the answer is like, so, so just to be really personal, like, well, I would never leave the Catholic church. It's the one true faith. It's the church that Jesus established. I'm just not. I don't care if every bishop, you know, if you think about Athanasius, uh, Contramuntum, and the Arian heresy, he was against, I don't know, what, 90-plus percent of the bishops in the world? Well, St. Thomas More, Bishop John Fisher. Yeah. They're like, the whole country of England right. is gone. Right. I don't care how many lay people are, in, you know, don't live out their faith and are inconsistent. I don't, none of that matters to me. What matters to me is, is this the true church? Is Jesus who he claimed to be? When Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh in John 6 and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Is that true or not? And where do I get that? I, I It's in the priesthood of the Catholic Church. It's all true, and I, and I give myself fully to it. But I also reject that the ape of the church is the church, this, this phrase that uh, Fulton Sheen used, of there, there are people in the church who are more or less on the lesser culpability side— who are just confused or deceived or poorly catechized. Then there's mm-hmm. deceivers and and predators who are who are like McCarrick and others who are who are in the laity and in the hierarchy both. Those aren't the real church. You know, Judas wasn't a true representation of a of an apostle or disciple in my opinion. Judas was a type. Judas was necessary to teach us unfortunately. Um, but nonetheless, I you know he's still created for an eternal relationship with God, and he and he chose you know contrary. I did the Camino this last year, and and I came up upon this Australian guy who was doing the doing the Camino because he lost his wife, and, and they're both you know young, and and he's just trying to figure out who he is without his wife, you know. And I found out he was a fallen away Catholic, and I found out that he was really involved in the church, like a lot of in quotes, good Catholics are. And and he and somebody got sideways with him and didn't, you know. I said, Can I can I have permission to offend you? Hmm. He said, Yes, but you won't offend me. I said, Why would you let Judas drive you away from Jesus? Wow. Why? Because no matter whether they're truly Judas or not, he feels like 
he was betrayed and he was, you know, it's really matter. It's his heart, you know. So I would just say, you know, I'll say this last thing. I met with a bishop whom, if I named him, the radio waves might shudder. I don't know. But <laughs> but before he was, you know, taken out, I he asked me, and this is when I was president of the BWT News, he asked me, is it as bad as it seems? And I said, Bishop, it's so much worse. I said, I, there are so many things I can't even report because of our journalistic standards but that I know are true. But I said, it doesn't matter, does it? He's like, no, it doesn't. We know that we are the light of the world. We know that Jesus is who he said he's. We know that he is the, that he is the balm of Gilead. We know that he's the one that sets the captives free. We know that we can have peace in the midst of the storm, but with him. So that's what we focus on is daily loving it and, and emulating him and giving our hearts over to him, bringing as many people to do that. Living that life is a life of peace and joy. Amen. Living a life concerned about things we can't control, that's the devil's game. That's how he wrecks devout souls, gets you wrapped up in stuff you can't control. You work in a diocese. When people first go to work for a diocese, like, oh, I get to work for the diocese. And then, you know, a few years later, they're like, <laughs> yeah, he was a happy soul. I don't know why he died so young. But you just, you come to realize really quickly, I have control over this little space. And it's actually, it's it's the width of my piney. And, you yeah. know. And 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 that's it. And there are other good people like that in dioceses too. The way that you get wrecked working in a diocese is when you try to accomplish things that God has not given you to accomplish. Amen. What has he given you to accomplish? Whatever the bishop says your parameters are, whatever it is you're called to do as a Catholic, do that and you will change the world. Michelle Dupont, that's all she did. Yeah. I never heard in her some kind of grand vision of of conquering the world for Jesus or anything. She just did what she could do, which is loving people in a very intense, beautiful way. And because she loved the Lord, he changed her in that way, made her whole. And because she knew him, she changed the world around her. And it's inevitable. Lent's coming up. Like, do you have, do you struggle with habitual mortal sin? Well, let's, how about this year? Let's Let's you become less a disciple of Satan and a true disciple of the one you claim you are. Yeah. Let's get this behind us. Or if you're past that, let's, what about the virtue that you know you need to exhibit for your kids and your spouse or for the church or for your job? You know, yeah. let's focus on those things and and the world will change and, and get healthier. I love it. Yeah. Let's make it the year. Dan, our our time has just flown by. I just want to give you one last, and maybe if I can, if I can, if you can shift into spiritual director mode, I just want to give you a chance to speak to those who are like, ah, and like they want it. They've heard a call in our conversation today. They they want to love people to Christ. They want to love people into the church. And they're just kind of standing at the precipice and they're a little scared. They're a little intimidated. What do you want to say to them? I want to say that you know Jesus said, "Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest." He said, "My peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give it to you." He said through the Holy Spirit to Saint Paul, "Have no anxiety about anything. If you want to live a life that transcends all the junk, if you want to live and experience what the apostles experienced, which is." the ability to have everything stripped from you, including the skin off of your own back, mm. and to rejoice in the face of it, 
and to know peace, to have your cart connected to eternity in heaven, you got to run. You got to run with him. You, you got to go. You can't steer a parked car. And if you're not moving, God's not steering. Get moving. Get off your stupid rear end. And, you know, the other thing about it is, you know, the church, of course, recognizes all kinds of motivation because in the traditional act of contrition, it says, you know, because I fear the loss of heaven and the pains of hell. Well, meditate on hell because people who are lukewarm, you know, Jesus said, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Like, all right, Lord, make me fervent. And if you don't have a fervent heart and you want one, ask him for one. He always answers that prayer. But then you better run too. You still got to get on the treadmill. Just, you know, he'll, he'll give you a treadmill. Just get on it and run. It's a beautiful life. For me, it was a bullet or a reason, a casket or a reason. And it's all true and it's all worth living for. And nothing else is. Yeah. Dan, thank you. I found our conversation inspiring and moving and convicting. So thank you. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for being with us today. God be praised. Great to be with you. All right, everybody. You know somebody who needs to hear this. So uh, I just want you to take a moment. Let the Lord bring that person to mind. Maybe it's been a while. <laughs> Maybe you need to like call and say hello first, but share this with them. Send it their way and let it be a gift. God bless. Thanks for listening to the EquipCast. We hope this episode has inspired you to live your faith and equip you to be fruitful in your mission. Stay connected with us by going to equip.archomaha.org. God bless and see you next time.